Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Shoman Katoshu Daini Juku Sok Umon Roji So Umonito Chichi Okoroshi Haha Okorostewa Hotokomai ni Mukate Sangesu Hotoke Okoroshi So Okoroshiwa Entangling Vines, Case 29. Umon's Exposed. A monk asked Umon Bunen, If you kill your father and mother, you can repent in front of the Buddhas. If you kill the Buddhas and ancestors, where can you repent? Umon said, exposed. It's getting late on this long day of Rohatsu. If we follow our two-dimensional mind, we feel that we are closer to the end than we are to the beginning. But already thinking that way, we have left this We have abstracted. We have taken the life out of this. And of course, as human beings, we do this all the time. Otherwise, there would be no society we would be living in. There would be no culture. There would be no language. But this Rohatsu in particular has turned into a wonderful example of teaching what we have to learn through this practice, through many other practices. This is one way. It's the way that we attend to at this moment, but it's not the only way. But what we saw in this wonderful way of connecting this time not only to each other using little bits of electrons that rush around the globe, but also that we ourselves had to have a different connection during the first couple of days of this long day, sitting in the morning, turning on, to the, on a dime, going out into that society, into that world, attending to our meals, attending to the work of the day. In the afternoon, tuning into a talk. Again, turning on a dime, listening to the talk, turning around, ghosting, ghosting into something else over and over. And at night, returning to the cushion. From the cushion, retiring to the bed or wherever you might sleep. You might be like Hakuin. I'm sure there's somebody here who like Hakuin gets themselves strapped into a futon and rolled into some kind of small place and freed in the morning. If not, 
if you want to try it, make sure somebody else knows in case it doesn't work out so well. But then in the morning we wake up again from wherever we might have been. The world has been, we don't know. And again, our sitting started. And this repeated for a couple of days, really, really teaching us how pliable, how flexible we have to be in order to not have an artificial distinction between practice, formal practice and life. How do we bring practice into our lives is a question that is so often asked. And I tend to answer by saying, it's the other way around. How do you bring life into practice? Because then there is no separation. Opportunities to learn every day, every day, every day. And then after some days, the first couple of days of this one day, we got to be together in this full-time schedule. It is a wonderful way of conducting Rohatsu. This is the international Zendo that knows no boundaries. It might even go beyond the great Chinese firewall. We don't know all of this together. And on this seventh day, we encounter case number 29 from this Entangling Vines collection. And in it, we encounter one of the Zen masters that we have heard of many times. Yesterday, Hokuto Sensei told us about some of the predecessors of this Zen master. And of course, we are speaking about Umon Bunen Zenji. Umon Bunen Zenji was born in 862 or 864. We don't know exactly which year. But what we know from inscriptions on plaques at his monastery is that he died in 949 of the common era. He was a Dharma heir to Seppo Gison. And we heard about Seppo Gison on several occasions during this Rohatsu. He was born in a town of Jiangxing, somewhere southwest of Shanghai. And he died at age 86. So that's how we can estimate when he was born. Like many of the Tang masters, he first was exposed to the Vinaya masters, the teaching of the rules and of the scriptures. And he studied that for several years and took monastic vows at the age of 20. However, as we know from the stories of so many ancient masters, it was not satisfying for him to look at the menu and to miss the meal. He was hungry. So what he's known for are some very important contributions to this koan study and the corpus, the works about koans. When he was a Zen master, the name Umon, of course, comes like most of the names of the Chinese 
ancestors from the place where he built his monastery. And um, un, really, un, mean, kumo means cloud. And mon, kado, is gate. And when the N from the un meets the M from the mon, it sounds like two M's. So we say ummon, the cloud gate. That's where he built his monastery. The monastery's name was Kodai Zen-in. The school that he started that followed with his successors flourished in the Song Dynasty, especially in the upper classes of Chinese society. And eventually it culminated in that compilation of the Hekigandroku, the Blue Cliff Record. And like everything that comes up, it might go down and eventually the Umon school merged with the school of Rinzai Gigen, the Rinzai school. Now I have made myself a promise not to tell the story with Bokshu and Umon's leg getting stuck in the door every time we meet Umon. So today is one of the days where this story will be skipped. But if you want to find it somewhere, just pick up anything about Umon and you will learn about what happened with that leg, with that leg in that door. However, Bokushu was old and he told Umon, ah, I am too old to teach you. You should go and study with somebody else. And he sent him away to Seppo. Umon, when he was 85 years old or so, he composed his farewell letter to his patron, who was the king of the new Southern Song dynasty. Now, the Han dynasty follows the song. So of the Southern Han dynasty. And uh, he gave a final lecture, finishing the lecture with the statement, coming and going is continuous. I must be on my way. And he held his word and he went on his way and died. Umon was particularly against having his words taken down. I can understand that. Nowadays, there's this little thing up here on the screen. It says recording. Everything that we say in front of this camera, every time we touch our face and so on, will be preserved at least for some time for posteriority. And uh, it's quite something to have to do that. And now the only response that happens is I have to say something really outrageous to get some kind of movement in the pictures up there. That's the only way for me to know that there is some live person on the other end. It's very different than speaking to a live audience. Oh, oh thank you so much for waving. Yeah. So he didn't want his words written down. Certainly he would have objected to video. Umon's contribution in terms of koans, he appears in 18 koans of that famous Blue Cliff record. Eight of Umon's sayings are included in the Shoyoroku, the book of equanimity. The gateless gate has five cases and here the Shumon Katoshu entangling vines has 23. What Oman also started was he started commenting basically on other master sayings. 
And as we see through history later, Seicho Juken commenting on those ancient 100 odes or koans. And then Engo Kokugon putting it together in the Blue Cliff Record, comments upon comments, ended up in capping phrases. And when Shingiroshi so wonderfully reads from the iron flute, slipping into not only the people in the koan, but also Genro and Fugai, and on top of it, Nyogen Senzaki, that is the out growth of that commenting on the sayings of other masters. His style was unique, Umon's style. And if we wanted to sum it up, koans that involve Umon, I would say about it, there are koans that collect that the connect with the gut, not the brain. Guts, not brain. There are other masters that have brain, not guts necessarily. But Umon definitely is that connection through the hara, through the gut. No intellection. It's so hard that even disciples, Engo Kokugon's successor, uh, Daie Soko, who was quoted here in, in a previous talk, and later also Daito Kokushi in Japan, they really dug into those cases of Umon that are so hard to penetrate that at some time it was described as hammerheads with no hole. So solid blocks, very, very difficult to penetrate. Yet we who engage in these koans, in this kind of practice, we continue to work on them and find ways to penetrate. Questions. Uman asked questions. What is it? He's, he was really very intense in everything he did. In his talks, he did not only shout, beat, spit, but he also played out skits. He would fall down on the rostrum. I'm dead. Just to demonstrate, no evasion, no hesitation, guts not brain. Here's a poem that is written about Mount Umon, describing what it meant for people to come there and to study with such an eminent ancestor. How steep is Umon's mountain? How low the white clouds hang? The mountain stream rushes so swiftly that fish cannot venture to stay. One's coming is well understood from the moment one steps in the door. Why should I speak of the dust on the track that is worn by the wheel. The devices, that's what it's called when you look into the history and you examine Umon's particular style, then who he was and how he acted will be described as a device. There's a wonderful, uh, Swiss-born scholar by the name of Urs Ab, who wrote about Uman, not only his dissertation, but also a full book about uh, Uman's uh, work, his teaching. It's a great thing to have and 
to go through when you have time. Ursap also spent time in Kyoto at, in Hanazono Daigaku in the uh, university. And there's the International Research Institute for Zen. That's where he spent a good amount of time as a fellow. So what are those devices? We are meeting one of them today. The example today is called a one word barrier. It's one of those hammerheads that has no hole in it. There are no frills, there's nothing attached to it. A monk comes and asks something. And Umon's answer is one syllable, one character, Ro. It's not the only time that he uses that. Another time he used the word Kan, which is barrier, stop. We could also say that the predecessor of those one word barriers appears in other koans. Joshu Osho, Chinamini Soto, Kushi ni Kaite, Usho Ariyamata Inaya, Shu Ibaku, Mu. So the Mu koan. One word, one word barrier, not umons though. And the questions that come from there are also typical for uman. Who is struggling? Why are you here? Well, let's say contemporaneous, in a contemporary way. What's your problem? A good question to ask in Zazen. What's my problem? So to finish up Uman, his teachings often are summarized in, in three statements. Umon no Sanku, the three ways that Umon taught with his koans. The first one was called, is called Kangai Kinkon, which means box and lid. Every one of those koans is like a box and we responding to it or he responding to it responds in a way that that box fits the lid. When you go in and your koan is asking for a round lid and you come in with some square kind of thing, the bell ring very quickly. So the perfect harmony between that what is presented and that what our response is, the oneness, the ability to be in accord with the circumstances. And in this case, of course, the circumstances, the conditions are the koan that is given to us. How do we manifest in accord with it? That's how the capping phrases also work. Capping phrases at times, the picture came to me, is like learning how to pair the right wine with the meal to make it just perfect. The second one is called Zuiha Chikuro, following the waves and adapting to the currents. Again, it somewhat flows out of the first one that the way the setup flows, one goes up, one goes down, and one has to learn to take that momentum and express it in the same way. So a dynamic element of up and down is an important part of it. Box and lid sounds very static. So in order not to get caught up with the idea of something fixed or hermetically closed when it fits, fits uh, the moment we have these waves, the ebb and flow with it, it remains dynamic. The third one, Saidan Shuru, 
is cutting through all streams, all streams, the stream of thinking, the stream of consciousness, the cutting through the stream of delusion, cutting through stories, all of that. And that's what the koans that Uman presents us with, ask us to do. So here is the case. Sometimes it feels like uh, being in court, reading out the docket. But that's what a koan is. It is a case to the public. And it is called a case. So a monk asked Umon Bunen, if you kill your father and mother, you can repent in front of the Buddhas. So yesterday we heard about potential vampires, zombies. Today we hear about a monk asking about killing his parents. What a strange question, wouldn't you say so? But it says more about the monk than is being led on right here. And when we have a koan where a monk asks a question, it's always very helpful to go and ask ourselves, well, why would this monk ask such a question? Clearly this monk had already some kind of history with Zen because I think it would be very strange to come off the street and say, hey, I want to ex of my old folks. You, you don't go to a Zen master for that. There are other places you would go. Uh, so what it shows here about the monk is that he probably had already studied somehow and heard about Master Rinzai, for example. Because we find in the Rinzai Roku, discourse number 18, it says the following. Whatever you encounter, either within or without, slay it at once. On meeting the Buddha, slay the Buddha. On meeting an ancestor, slay the ancestor. On meeting an arhat, slay the arhat. On meeting your parents, slay your parents. On meeting your kinsmen, slay your kinsmen and you attain emancipation. But not cleaving to things, by not cleaving to things, you freely pass through. So this monk apparently must have some kind of had some exposure to this because his questions are exactly the same in a little different order. If you kill your father and mother, you can repent in front of the Buddhas. If you kill the Buddhas and ancestors, where can you repent? What is new here is they ask for where to repent. So killing father and mother is just another way of saying a question similar to what was your face before your father and mother were born? This way we wouldn't have to kill them. Just they weren't born yet. On the other hand, 
we have to also to learn to reflect on these words that appear quite violent in this tradition. Killing this, killing that. Ahimsa. Do not harm, do not kill. How does this go together with this act of killing? We have to become truly intimate with the language that is being used in Zen. Killing is just a strong word, sometimes asking for a reaction, other times to instill in us the right energy to be able to go forth with extreme determination, to completely cut off a story, a stream, an idea. You have to kill your ego is one of the most misunderstood ideas that we get from reading books about Zen. Yes, of course, the ego must die. The ego must disappear. But if we just attack it from that way, and it is an attack, then we only see still in the two-dimensional way of calling it a thing an object, even if you call it a delusion, we still have an idea with it. So to replace the idea of getting rid of an idea with another idea does not lead to resolution of it. Going back to the two, the second, the function of the ebb, the ebb and flow, the dynamic element in all of this is important here. So killing, getting rid of, getting beyond, disappearing, becoming free off is an expression of this dynamic that at times things are manifest, at other times they are not. Appearance and disappearance, birth and death, reincarnation, or even resurrection. Descriptions of this wonderful dynamic process. Quite important. Now, if we think about killing father and mother, There is something to that, that I wanted to point out today, especially here we are in the year 2020. Of course, by no means will I ask anyone to do harm to their parents. That's not it. But what we have to clearly examine is what we have received from father and mother. When Joshu Roshi spoke about it, father and mother, it was the two opposing phases of this dynamic activity. Sometimes he called it plus, plus or expansion and minus contraction, life and death, father and mother. And what happened, how he described it, is when they are all together in this primordial, wonderful chaos that is zero, that is pregnant with all the possibilities of all things in the world. When it breaks apart, not only comes the space into existence between it in that polarization and the chaos turns into cosmos with a certain order, but it's also like crumbling a cookie. You know, when you break a cookie apart, inevitably there are some crumbs in that space in between. 
and those crumbs, a little bit of this side and exactly the same amount of that side are a microcosmos of the larger, which of course, by losing these little crumbs now is as incomplete as the crumbs. So our self, our consciousness, our existence is a little microcosmos of the larger cosmos, but both of us are incomplete. The only way to come to completion is for that child, that consciousness of self that awakens to an I am is to make relationship with that father, with that mother. Now, when we say we should kill them, you have to kill them, as Rinzai said. It's not just the ideas about it, but what Zen practice teaches us is to embrace everything, to learn how to make all of father your content as well as all of mother. Only then can the child grow up and be able to return to that 100% or 0% of completion. That's a very short description of how Joshu Roshi used to talk about it. Inhalation, exhalation, all of that are in that dynamic and can be seen through that dynamic. Yeah, vampires we had yesterday, today we hear about the children eating their parents in order to grow up. So spiritual cannibalism. Another way though, we see in the second half of this question, that is then with the Buddhas and patriarchs. But one more, one more mention before we get to Hotokesama, to Buddhas. And that is this practice when we have to look at father and mother asks us to also clearly and very carefully determine what we have inherited, what we have been given by these parents of ours. And there is not a single person here listening to these words or speaking these words who was not born from parents. We are all emanations of conditions. And that condition that constitutes you, that constitutes me, has many different aspects. Some of them are more ephemeral than others. Age is one such reflection. So youth is ephemeral. But the water that you drink is even more ephemeral. It doesn't stay very long. On the other hand, when we grow up and our parents and more than parents, our culture, that what we call the environment, all of that, what we call nurture gives us needs to be clearly, closely examined in this practice. Because it's not all helpful. I'm sure you have heard about what is referred to as intergenerational trauma, where the way the parents are and their experiences are in a natural way moved forward, transmitted to their children. And of course, we receive such messages at times where we don't have the ability to examine them in the same way that we have the ability to examine them now. For example, 
we might have inherited some underlying ideas of racism, some underlying ideas of value judgments that are not helpful to society overall. Or we are beings of relationship. We might have seen some relationships that played out in front of us in ways that are not helpful. It could have been violence. It could have been interactions that are not good examples to carry forward. On the other hand, there might be some things we have inherited that are wonderfully helpful. But no matter what it is in this practice, when we sit on our cushion and these topics come up, we do have to examine them carefully so that we do not just repeat and unconditionally affirm conditions which we have the power to change. It's sometimes I ask myself, why is it so easy to keep some really, really bad ideas alive from generation to generation? So clearly we can do it as society, as human beings and Practices like Zen practice help with examining these conditions that make up who we are and how we act. And examining and finding out that there are things in there we don't want, first of all, to give forward, but that we want to cut off. And I will not say kill, because using violent language in itself might be one of those uh, things that we better not propagate forward. As long as there are words like that coming out of human beings, acts of killing will be committed. So we have to be very careful with that. So let's say when we do something that is in violation of our own intuition of what is the appropriate thing to do, sometimes we don't have the strength yet to pull ourselves out of these stories, out of these patterns that have been imparted onto us through culture, through upbringing, through experiences. And we act in a way that is injurious, that is harmful, and also harmful to our own feeling. If it weren't harmful to our own feeling and if we could not pick up on it, we would not feel bad. We had four years of somebody demonstrating to us that some people do not have such feelings at all. But we do. And as it says in the koan, what do we do? Hotoke mai, in front of the Buddha. And mukate is to face, facing the Buddha, facing our best intention, our aspiration, our bodhicitta, we can engage in that, what we call sangha. Oh. 
committed by me, sins of old, giving ourselves fully to that purification is what we can do in that moment. That's why we chant it every morning. And even if we have the best intention we do harm and we do sangha and we try to make our ego footprint smaller and smaller, smaller and smaller. But it cannot be reconciled when there is subject and object, there is harm and how we live our lives while doing harm, that reconciliation is really what this monk was asking about that drove him to go and seek somebody like Umon out to ask, not just about the parents, but also what if we kill the Buddha and the ancestors? So when Rinzai talked about that, what, what is he pointing to? It's really not much different from what I had spoken about. It's that ability to let go, first to clearly examine, and then to penetrate all these ideas that we have. Even the Buddha is an idea. Purity is an idea, an abstraction. Goodness, rottenness, all of it are abstractions. Our old patterns, bonno, which we vow to extinguish in the second of the four great vows are that. So is there any repentance in that when we are able to free ourselves from it? If you say, if I say, if we say, no, that's good. We are still nailed flat-footed to the two-dimensional world that knows no solution to this. So what does Umon do? Roll, exposed, obvious. Look, see, or since we talked about Hakuin, remember when Hakuin arrived at Choju Rojin's hermitage after had, having had this awakening with the temple bell while he was working on Muji, on the Mu Koan. And Choju Rojin asked him, how did you see Muji? How did you experience that Mu? And Hakuin said, Muji, there is no place to lay a hand on it. Shoju Rojin 
immediately took Hakuin's nose in his hand and twisted it. Obvious. Oh, exposed. No question. And we might not be ready. We are all able to experience it. This, because this is where we live. We might not be able to be in accord with it. And at that time, Hakui not yet had been in accord with it. So Shoju Rojin said, you say it can't be touched, but this is how much it can be touched. Another wonderful example yesterday The candle. Roh. Toksan clearly. It was obvious, exposed. One character barrier. One character answer. This in the flavor of Oman. It's wonderful. And when we chant the verse of purification, we too make exposed and obvious if we have developed that ability of Kyogai to be present and be the full manifestation of the only way to solve this conundrum of living as a human being in a world of separation. Under the tree so far, demons, beautiful, tempting images have emerged. But Siddhartha is still sitting, still sitting, unperturbed, single-minded, but also single-hearted. The night is already coming. And if it had been Uman, upon seeing the morning star, even the Buddha could have shouted, This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.